Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is Tim Whiting. Tim is the founder and CEO of Timothy James and Partners. They are our independent financial planning partners. It was an interesting conversation with Tim. We discussed the purpose of financial planning, the value proposition, and touch on some of his case studies. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. This is the Why Invest podcast. Tim Whiting, welcome to the podcast. Tim, why should people hire financial planners? That's a great question, Doug. Actually, um, I don't think everybody should employ financial planning. So perhaps the other way of asking that question is, when do you think you need an independent financial advisor? So I think the government had an issue in 1986 when it created the Financial Services Authority. Uh, not, not the, sorry, it didn't create the Financial Services Authority. We went through the Financial Services Act. And if you look at how financial services had been distributed up to that point, it was through brokers who typically went to public school, were very well-spoken um, and hadn't passed an exam in their life. They didn't make their parents wishes of doctors, accountants and lawyers, so they became financial brokers. There were banks and building societies. There were discretionary fund managers, people in private equity and insurance companies. So of the population at that stage, requiring financial services advice, those were the places that you would go to get it. So quite unregulated. Pretty unregulated. And actually, most people were commission-orientated salespeople and generally recommended what was appropriate for them is the worry, rather than what's the best and the most suitable for the client. And again, that works in banks and building societies as well, because when you start analysing the banking liquidity crisis, it's crystal clear that the bankers all got paid more money and bigger bonuses and got rewarded with wonderful share packages in shares that only went up in banks um, based on the amount of money they lent, not necessarily based on the affordability. Uh, the same thing happens in financial services, is that if you're a fund manager or a um, discretionary fund manager, is you were financially remunerated on the amount of money you got, not necessarily how well the money was run. And the same thing happens in financial planning, particularly, I think, on insurance-based products, Everything was based on initial commission. So you were awarded financially for the initial hit, and then you disappear into the distance um, without necessarily taking responsibility for what you advised. Mm -hmm. so, so how's it changed now? So they brought the Financial Services Act in because the government's very concerned. In fact, the only reason why we all exist is the government's concerned that we're going to end up on the state when we get to age 65. So they needed to regulate the advice and they wanted discretionary fund managers, banks to go through a set of qualifications in whatever specialism you chose. Um, in financial planning, it was an exam called the FPC 123. And then more recently, they brought in RO1 to 6. And then there's advanced papers and J papers in what we do. So Distribution and how financial services has been distributed is interesting. And my mother would have liked me to be in private equity, I'm sure. Maybe in a private bank, maybe in a very smart discretionary fund manager's office. But instead, I discovered financial planning, which is more of a relationship based around the individual 
than the pot of money. And that's a very long-term relationship. And it's very hard work at the beginning. So to go back to the original question about why does anybody need to have independent financial planning advice, I think I'd summarise that in that probably 90% of the population would like to have an independent financial advisor. Whether they should be paying for that advice facilitated through their investment over a period of 30 years is easy to look at in hindsight, I'll let you know, whether they're better off to go directly or whether they're better off to have advice. So let's start, I suppose, from the outset. Let's draw a distinction between discretionary fund management and financial advisory. What is the difference? Um, I think from our point of view, it's, it's the services that we provide. So I'm interested, as an independent financial advisor, there are 9,000 firms in the country. There aren't enough independent financial advisors for the amount of people who want us. So for every 60 clients that refer to us a month, it's probably appropriate for 40 of them. Sometimes we would look at what they've got and say, actually keep doing with what, actually someone phoned me the other day. And I looked at what she had and said, in reality, keep doing what you've got. Don't pay me 0.85% a year and some initial fees to run up and set up what you want. What you're doing is fine. You just want me to have a look at it and tell you it's fine, which you can have for free because we're only a referral business. So I was, the accountant was important to phone me up and say, I've had a look, it's fine. Better continue doing what she's doing. So our job as an independent is to understand the client's situation. And then we have to provide the best and the most suitable solution by that client. So the first two or three meetings we run at our cost so that we can gather lots of information about the client. What I mean by that is where they were born, where they live, what their house is valued at, have they realized the potential of the house? Is it where they want to live? Are they gonna buy flats for their children? Do you think it's become, let's go take you back to when you started your career, has it become an awful lot more complex as it's become more regulated? Yeah, I don't think we should let regulation get in the way of what's good for clients. I mean, you don't want a business which is run by the compliance department. Absolutely not. What you want is a business that's run with the interests of providing the best and the most suitable for the clients at the starting point and everything else falls the back of that. And I think that's what's happened. That can happen. And I think that in the last 10 years, the commoditization of financial services is a problem. Everybody wants a cut. But that's uh, easy. The commoditization of financial services makes it easier than not for regulation, regulators to regulate. But, but is that... Is that good for the, the client? Goal. No, 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 absolutely not. I agree. You know, is that a good for the client? Exactly. I mean, I've only got half an hour on your podcast, but if you went back to my grandfather, who was born in 1909, when he took his tax-free cash from his pension scheme... <laughs> He, with his bank manager, purchased 20 FTSE 100 shares. BP, Shell, Glaxo, AstraZeneca, Marks and Spencers, Tesco's, you know the bunch of them. Royal Bank of Scotland was always in there. And then about 20 years after that, the bank manager said, you really need to go and see my friend Douglas. 
at Waverton. What he'll do is that he'll run this portfolio for you. How do you know? What do you know about choosing BP or Shell? You should maybe have more. Maybe you should have 40 shares. He looks at all of their balance sheets. He sees some of these companies and his team of analysts behind him will give you their view of the opportunities that you should be putting your money into. And Bill said, oh, what a good idea. How much do you charge for that? Well, we charge 1.25% a year for that. Well, I think that's fair. Well, the dividends are 4% after all. Then Doug, my mate Doug, that's you, Mm. turns around and says, well, actually what you need to know, Bill, is that you're all in the UK. We've got these things called unit trusts now. You need to meet Angus Tullock, who runs the First Day Asian Leaders Fund. You need to go and see Paul Corser and Paul Reid that run the Corporate Bond Fund. from America, yeah, unit trusts. I think there were mutual funds in America, which became unit trusts, which we now call OICs. Bill, my grandfather, would have said, well, that sounds like a good idea to me. So he's now in Europe, Asia, and in America. And you say, how much are you paying for that fund? Well, I'm paying 0.75% a year. So your total charge at this point is 2% a year. Mm-hmm. 1.25%. And then you turn around about 10 years after that and said, Bill, what you really need is some financial planning. It's no good having all these direct holdings because you're going to get capital gains tax. What you need to know more about is PEPs, single company PEPs, pensions, self-invested personal pensions. Have you given some thought to your inheritance tax planning? No, no, these are all very good points. You're right. I should talk to your colleague about financial planning. How much does he charge? Well, he charges 0.75% a year of the pot. So now, Bill probably doesn't know, but he's paying about 2.75% a year. But he's managed to go from his direct share portfolio that he followed on a Sunday morning with his eggs and bacon in the newspaper, to discretionary fund manager, to unit trusts, which became OICS, to give him his international exposure. And then he's got all this wonderful financial planning around it, and he's now paying 2.75% to 3%. And talking about the commoditization, it goes further, doesn't it? Because then you get platforms and then you get products. And then you get, actually, Doug, I know you think you know my risk, but really you should use a Finometrica as well. So we've got to use 25 questions to see what that's all about. And it goes on and on and on. In reality, the question is, over the last 50 years, were those 20 individual shares that he bought with his bank manager worth more after everybody had taken a little piece out of the process. So I don't like the commoditization of financial services. No, I don't. And actually, I think what will happen is it will go back to pure, transparent fund management. And what we've done at Timothy Jameson Partners with Waverton is we've designed our own, which includes passives and trackers in America, Europe, and the UK, because over the long term, stock markets should outperform other asset classes. And in financial planning, the difference between discretionary fund managers and financial planning is that we're always, always talking about retiring. But you're not retiring for 20 years. We're always talking about school fees. Yeah. School fees planning. 
Poppy, Benjamin and Jemima are going to Stowe, Ardingly and Bradfield at different periods of time where there's a liability due in the future in five years, seven years, nine years. It's always on a time frame. So rather than worrying about quarterly performance and benchmarking, the pots of money we look after are all longer term. So I actually think that passives and trackers have a place. Then I think where you need to speak the language, understand the culture, be living in the country, have a big analytical team in the emerging markets in Asia, I think it's important. And I think we should pay for fund managers in those markets. And then with Waverton, who are seeing 870 individual companies a year, you are providing your best 50 in Europe and in the UK and in America, your best ideas, and that's whittled down further to around 30 to put a sprinkling over that portfolio for much more focus at a much more competitive price. That's unique. And I think in the next 10 years, that's how model portfolios will be run. Interesting. Going back to your conversation with clients, let's say your first interaction with a client, presumably talking about what stocks go in their portfolio, it will be one of the last conversations you have with them. What are some of the first questions that you ask? So, good question. But first of all, we establish where the client comes from. Mm -hmm. Through the referral network. Through the referral network. Through the Then we would phone the client, first of all, and say, hi, Tim Whiting, I saw that Pat put us in contact uh, this morning. Delighted to have an initial chat with you. Tell me what it is that you think we can help with. And then you qualify that lead. So by the time you've spent 20 minutes on the phone having a chinwag about what it's all about and why they need to see you, by the time they get to the office, which we insist on the first meeting being in our office, so they get a feel for what we're all about, and we would then sit down and say, first of all, the first couple of meetings are for you to find out whether you like us and whether you trust us and for us to find out whether there's a job to do and how much it's going to cost you. So you're under no obligation other than to drink our coffee and listen to me waffle on about Timothy Jameson Partners, what we stand for and the difference between us as an independent financial advisor and everybody else. So they go through so if that. you had to isolate the difference between you as a financial advisor and oh, everybody else? That's another question on another question. I know. Okay. This is an issue. <laughs> so the, I'll come back to the first question um, about what we ask. What makes us different is there are no bonuses or no commission at Timothy Jones and Partners. All the consultants have a flat salary. It's assessed once a year. They're all qualified, as high, highly qualified as you can be. Um, we don't allow any consultants under the age of 30. We require them to be able to talk to business owners about directors' loan accounts, balance sheets, turnover, profit and loss, how they value their business, is it an income stream, recurring income streams, what type of clients they have, property, inheritance. So I think you need some experience as well as qualifications. In all of our industries under the Financial Services Act, in 2005 through to 2020, you end up with university students coming out who then spend the next five years being wonderfully qualified. They're probably the best looking, best communicators, most qualified 
people you've met in financial services. But unless the phone rings, who cares? The industry's littered with it. All these people saying, all I need is 100 clients. That should be their line. All I need is 100 clients. All I need is a miracle. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Some companies you'll get them. Some people you can wait for someone else to retire and get their client base. But our business is not like that. Mm-hmm. So they have a responsibility, as a surgeon does, to go and get their own business. Articles, presentations, actually one-to-one with many people that can influence where your work comes from. I, all of our consultants are responsible for that. And the message in terms of what makes us different, you know, so I got back on track now. No commission, no bonuses. I don't understand as an independent financial advisor how you can be remunerated for how much lending you do, how much funds under management you do, how much commission income you generate, how many your fee income, your initial project fee income. It encourages a bad behaviour. Mm-hmm. We've never had it for 25 years. The FCA started on it recently and saying you have to change your remuneration structures to create best behavior. Because if I got paid more for recommending A Mm. over C, I might give you nine really good reasons why you should have A. Mm. So at Timothy Jameson Partners, there's no commission, no bonus structure. Number two, we only accept work by referral. Has to come from your accountant, your lawyer, or existing clients. But in the old days, we didn't have any existing clients. Now we've got lots of existing clients. So, so why is that? Why, because, why? because everybody needs an independent financial advisor. Everybody wants the best current account. Everybody wants the best deposit account. Everybody wants the best mortgage. Everybody wants the best pension. How do you stop a population just coming through the door? You need to be specialist and you need to filter and understand the audience that you're talking to so that you can design your services like our new Waverton portfolios around the audience that we look after. The population that I look after is the third reason why Timothy James and Parnes is different, is that we only really look after people who are self-employed, sole traders, business owners, entrepreneurs, people that have a hope factor that their idea, they believe in this idea themselves, which they're building, is going to succeed. And they will create jobs around that. They're time poor. They don't have a an employment contract that says, I've got private health care for my family. I've got death in service. I've got a share option scheme. So let's go back to the, what are the conversations that you have? So your first conversations that you have with your clients or your prospects and prospects. Yeah. So just to recap on question number two, referral only, Consultants are not remunerated on a bonus and commission structure. We're very investment orientated for a financial planning firm. We interview over 60 fund managers a year, five a month. Um, So our consultants tend to be up with advisory, MPS, discretionary. We understand what all the companies are doing at any one time. It's non-transactional execution only. We don't do that. So it's all or nothing. And then you fall into what type of work we're being referred to. So in the West End, you are referred to lots of musicians, all of the comedians, all of the TV people, all of the film people, all of the PR and advertising people are in our category that we look after. Mm -hmm. 
So the questions that you're asking them, you've got to be careful because let me tell you, they have no interest in money at all. How do you get them to be interested by money? It's quite a difficult challenge here because I suppose a lot, and you've, you've earmarked some of the big sort of issues in our industry. I think one of the big ones for me is, is we have a habit of, of banging on about the features of what we do uh, and not the benefits. So how do you capture their imagination? Financial planning is 90% about trust. They're not interested, so they tend to say, I leave it to you. Now, that's a big responsibility. So what questions you've got to ask are to fortify the level of advice and the structure of that person's finances for them to feel financially secure. If they feel financially secure, also well-educated, but it takes time, typically there are three or four options. So you've got to debate those with them to see which ones they feel happy with. Mm-hmm. I see. And so in, in a real-world example, I mean, I don't want to give you any names, but say you had a comedian coming through the door and they probably had income, which was all over the place, you know, it was, it was sporadic at best. COVID would have stopped any kind of income that may have generated from performances. How do you guide or hold their hand through the sort of um, maze of financial services? Okay, so this, the question is, what do you do for the comedian when we know that live events have stopped as at March the 23rd. Exactly. But also, what do you do? How do you devise a financial plan where you have such an uncertain stream of income? I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, that's also many industries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got a, a songwriter that had a number one hit, got paid 400,000 in one year, previous year, 20 grand. Mm-hmm. So exactly. So what's the that, that's quite a um, that's an undertaking for any financial. Right? So the financial planning in those people's worlds are a mortgage which is affordable, both on the twenty thousand and when you do the four hundred thousand, you park their tax bill because they're very good at spending their tax bill. You always try and hold fifty thousand pounds in premium bonds as an emergency fund. As we know, it's been paying 1.4% a year tax-free. You may win more or less than that amount. They are guaranteed by the government. Mm. They are instant access within five working days. 1.4% tax-free, you never know your luck. Two people win a million pounds every month. But it acts as an emergency fund and they've got to take action to get that money. So there is a deterrent to not use it as cash flow. You would look for a flat, probably you would be considering inheritance in the future. Is that the last lump sum they're going to get? You would look at the royalties uh, that they might receive and whether there's a long-term income stream. The offset mortgages enables you to take out, in that example, let's say £150,000. You park maybe £75,000 of the cash from the great year against that offset mortgage. So you're only paying interest on the outstanding balance at any one time, but you can phone them up and draw individual amounts of a minimum of £2,000 and more. And you're given that £150,000 for the next 25 years. They're never financially underwriting again. And it gives that self-employed person with fluctuating income more control. Let's try and look in the crystal ball um, and have a think about what the industry looks like in five or ten years' time. Do you think we're still going to be having similar conversations about 
the strengths of, of marrying um, discretionary fund management and financial planning? Um, or do you think it's just going to be a given? What will the value proposition be in five years' time? I look at distribution of financial services. So go for the four corridors at the beginning. The first one is I'm a private bank or a clearing bank. Most of the FCA are in a bank looking at their systems and processes, whether they're private or clearing banks. Barclays is a good example. Their number of ombudsman complaints in the last six months last year, I think it's about 430,000. Okay, so they are moving all of the financial planning out of the branches. They don't like the compliance under RDR. They don't want to disclose. Yeah, they don't want to disclose what they're earning out of each contract. And also, they are big, so their compliance problem is big, and they have to regulate the lowest common factor. Therefore, they tend to commoditize everything, have square things for round holes. It's not great. And the outcome is have a look at the ombudsman. Private banks, transpires a lot of private banks have been doing what's great for private banks. So I don't think that, and also their minimums have moved up. Because of compliance and regulation, they say we're not prepared to open a file unless you've got three million pounds to give us. We'll provide you with all the banking, all the overdrafts, all the loans, guarantee your kid's mortgage, providing we've got the investment. So that's the banking industry. Are you going to get your financial planning and investment advice from the banks? You will do if you're really rich. And what's interesting about really rich people is that once upon a time, they were really poor. So you've got to catch them built on trust before they make their fortunes 20 years, 30 years down the road. So that's that bit. The second bit we talked about was insurance companies. Mm -hmm. All pensions for 120 years were with a pension company. Prudential, Commercial Union, Norwich Union, Equity and Law, Sun Alliance, National Mutual, MPI with the squirrel, second biggest payer of annuities in the UK in uh, up to 1999, Equitable Life. Not one of that list exists anymore, 20 years on. The world's moved on to platforms, has moved on to specialist. I'll provide you with administration platform. Fund management can look after the pension, Schroeder's, M&G, First Date, Waverton. They only do investment. What are insurance companies good at? They're good at collecting direct debits and arguing about your claim. Let them do that. They're, they're not a good value proposition. What they are good at is prudential, legal and general, have been good at lots of different things, move with the times, they're okay. But I... Well, because they've found niches, they've specialised in certain areas. They're bulk buying. They're good at trackers. They've got good investment departments in some areas. They're good at insurance, critical illness, life cover, income protection. But they're not all good at the same thing. So you need to know what what they do. The definitions of critical illness is very important. The old style contracts with Scottish Provident, which was take took over Pegasus, which was the initial contracts uh, that came to the UK in 1986. They're very thorough in definition. So you, whatever your heart attack, cancer, stroke is, you will be covered. If you look at the new contracts, 
they're a little bit diluted from there. So the death of two heart muscles, not one, would be a good example, is the definition of a heart attack before I pay you your money. So insurance companies are good in that space, but are they where you get financial planning advice? Probably not. And most of them are restricted. They can only offer you what's on their shelf. If you need life cover, oh, I've got one of those. This is what it is. That's it, have one, that's it. Your next area is in the discretionary fund management world and brilliant in pure investment. The bigger ones, I think, are commoditizing everything. Uh, I think they recognize that the market they looked after for 200 years is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I think since 1970, with new industries, PR, advertising, TV, film, most of the DFMs are concentrating on the rich, affluent, land-owning, old brands that did well in the previous 100 years. And of course, that type of wealth is dissipating um, and getting smaller. And the only way for DFMs to grow is probably to buy other DFMs. I think you started with Quilters that bought Cheviot, that was bought mm. by Old Mutual. Mm. Um, I've lost track of mm. who's called what mm. in that. But yeah, so, it's not, there's, well, so, and that's interesting. Do you think then, so we've got consolidation in the DFM arena. Do we and they are adding financial planning. Fragmentation in the insurance industry as, as, insurance, as insurers specialise in going that form. They're interested in cheap and mass market. And they will do well because they historically have all the money. You know, that's, they, and they have all the direct debits and they have a majority of the population. So actually they can bring their costs down and provide cheap, clean pensions, life cover en masse for non-sophisticated people. And that's their market. And I'm sure they'll do very well with it. Group pensions. Um, so we've covered banks. Are they the answer? We've covered insurance companies. Are they the answer? We've covered discretionary fund managers and what's going to happen. And then you've got um, independent and restricted financial advice. So I, I think that in the next 10 years, it will be about independent financial advice where you sit on the client side of the table, understanding them today, find the best and the most suitable which is normally an array of several different providers that each specialize in a subject. We look at financial strength. We look at what regulations behind them, even though they say they're never gonna go bust. I don't know if you recall the banking liquidity crisis, that was a bit of a shock. Mm. When you put your card into the ATM and it said insufficient funds and you couldn't work out whether it was you or them. Um, Financial strength is important. Flexibility. Can I stop, start, increase, decrease, whatever I'm doing? Are there any penalties for coming out of it? As an independent, that would imply even they don't believe they're very good. Because if there were no penalties and they were very good, I'm going to stay with them. But if the moment you start putting penalties on something to get out, it implies that they, even they think that they're rubbish. Because they're by the time the person's worked out two, three years down the road, they've got a square thing trying to go into a round hole and you charge them 4% to get out, they're not very happy. So flexibility, historical investment performance is important. Mm -hmm. Tax wrapping is important. It's all very well getting a 10% return, but if you only end up with 
five and a half percent because you have the wrong tax structure. That's not great. Mm-hmm. So I think independent is important. Understanding the client's situation to build something that's tailored around them using several diversified specialists in whatever that mm-hmm. looks like. The best current account, the best deposit account, the best commercial bank, the best fund manager, the best fund manager in sustainability, the best fund manager in in America, because you want dollar-based accounts, the best mortgage company for you. So, so I think that specialism is important, but ultimately, ultimately, in the next 10 years, it is about financial planning and investment working together in partnership to beat the costs down, using the buying power, being transparent, being focused, delivering stuff that's great value, not commoditized, transparency, fair charges, which the client is then educated on about why we're doing stuff. They can see the results of three or four different options over a period of time. So in time, when they are more sophisticated, when they have more money, they can make a joint decision with you because at the beginning, they have no idea. They turn up in a jeans and a T-shirt and say, I've just been paying 400,000 pounds from Sony. I have no idea what to do. I mean, we had a guy signed for Netflix, age 18, hasn't even opened a current account. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out a career in the financial planning industry? In financial planning. So I would say... I would have to manage people's expectation. First of all, during COVID lockdown 2020, I feel very sorry for that group of people. Are we going to take on anybody? Probably not. We already have 11 people of the 85 who have joined us in the last 12 months and working from home makes it very difficult for them to progress. But let's assume it's a normal year. What would I be saying, I would be going to the growth area of the industry, which I think is independent financial planning. I would work out whether my motivation is money. If I'm motivated by money, don't become an independent financial advisor. Go into private equity or go into be a hedge fund where you're on two and 20. If you are interested in people and you're generous with your time and you want to be part of their lives for 30 years and you're quite creative and you're a strong communicator and you care about them and what you're doing. Being an independent financial planning advisor 20 years in is an amazing job. Career satisfaction is great, particularly if you're needy. The phone never stops ringing. I need you for this. What do you think of this? My child is, is ill with this. Do you know any doctors? I mean, there's so many things you get involved with and you need to be a solution provider. Um, but I think you need to work out what motivates you. Uh, you need a bit of creativity. You need to be people orientated. You need to be technical and you need to be able to get through your exams initially. I think you need to suck up how difficult it is for the first 10 years, um, knowing that from years 15 onwards, it gets much, much easier. And you need to be in a business where the senior people pass on all their new clients to you. Tim Whiting, thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Tim Whiting, the CEO of Timothy James and Partners. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like it and subscribe to it and tell your friends. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.